Masechet Ketubot Afsadi Dalid. We saw the Mishnah already that if a man is married to four women and he dies, his estate has to pay out the Ketubah to all four, but there may not be enough money to pay all of them. So let's say, for example, that they're each collecting 200. Uh, so the first one who was married first has uh, rights to get paid in full first. Um, however, she has to, before she gets paid, she makes a vow to the second wife that she didn't receive any money yet. So she can collect the full 200. She makes that vow. After she's done, uh, if there's still money left over, then the second will make a vow to the third, collect what she had. The third makes a vow to the fourth, and she collects. If there's still money left over, the fourth collects without a chevoir because the first three already got paid, so the fourth one can take whatever is left. That is the opinion of Tanakama. Benanas, however, said, well, just because she's last, she should get an advantage. Rather, the fourth also has to make a vow. Uh, we're going to start today's Gemara explaining three different reasons why Benanas would say that the fourth one would have to take a vow. So we ask, what is at the essence of this controversy? Answer number one, Amash Shemuel. Kegon shenimset ahad mehen sadeh she'ena shelo. Ubebaal chob meuchar shekadam vegaba kamipalge. We're talking about a case, for example, where one of the fields that was paid to the first wife or the second wife turns out that it was not his, it was not the husband's. He had taken it, he had stolen it, um, and now it's going to be repossessed. And so now, let's say the first wife got that, um, that had, had that field, and now it's repossessed, um, and already the first, second, third, and fourth wife were already paid out uh, before it was repossessed. What happens? Can the first wife go to the fourth wife and say, um, hey, my, the, what, the one that I got was repossessed because it wasn't really his, so, and you already got paid, but I, I deserve to get paid first. Therefore, for wife number four would have to give number one the, um, the a field that she got. Does that happen? Or once it's paid out, it's paid out. So that's what the machloket is about. Um, so regarding a Baal Chob, a creditor, who is a later creditor, has a lien on, at a later date, but if he comes and collects first, he seizes the property, he's awarded it in, uh, in court before... A lien, a lien holder that really is earlier, the lien, the earlier lien holder should get it, but if the later lien holder happens to get his hands on it first, um, what what is the status, right? Can the earlier lien holder remove it from the later lien holder or not? So that's the uh, that's the subject of Machloket here. Tanakama Savar Mashegaba Logaba Tanakama says what the later lien holder, in this case, will be the fourth wife collects is not collected, uh, meaning any time any of the first three wives, if it turns out that uh, a field that they had collected has to be repossessed because it never belonged to the husband, they can all go to the fourth and say, even though it was awarded to you, sorry, you you didn't deserve it because we did, and they can uh, take it from the fourth. That's why the fourth doesn't have to uh, make a vow, because the fourth, even if she did receive something before, she's never going to receive any portion that really belongs to the first three. The first three will always be paid in full, because they can repossess what the fourth has. Ben Anas, however, says, in general, if a later lien holder gets his hand on, hands on that land first, the earlier lien holder cannot take it away. 
And so therefore, in this case, even after the first, second, third, all get paid, the fourth still should make a vow, just in case land is awarded to the fourth, and then land belonging to the first or second gets repossessed. In that case, according to Ben Anas, the first or second lose out. They cannot go to the fourth and uh, demand it, d- demand uh, land from the fourth. That's why the, even the fourth one has to make a vow before she gets anything that she also did not receive any payout of her, her kitubah beforehand because potentially the fourth could get something, uh, could get paid and could uh, uh, take away what will what is deserving to the first or second or third wives. So that's why Ben Anas says that even the fourth has to make a vow. All right, all that is explanation number one. Second explanation. Amad of Nachman, Amad Rabah Bar Abu. No, he says, in fact, everyone agrees, Tanakama and Ben Anas agree that um, what the fourth collected is not a, a final collection, and if one of the first uh, three get repossessed and the fourth has to give it up. So that is not the machloket. Rather, here we're worried about perhaps the uh, fourth will cause will cause embarrassment to one of the first three that the fourth doesn't have to vow and the first three will feel embarrassed. Oh, you know, we're less trustworthy than that one that we have to make a vow that we weren't paid anything yet and we're demanding the full 200 and the fourth one doesn't. Benana says, uh, that we do worry that the, they will be they will feel embarrassed and therefore make the fourth wife vow even though um uh even though what she possessed is not really a possess uh, is not fully possessed so, so that the fourth one will never have to, will never actually uh take away any land that belongs to the first three because the first three can always repossess it if it if one of their lands is repossessed um but in order that they not feel embarrassed so let all four be treated equally whereas tanakama says no we don't worry about that the fourth one is causing embarrassment to the first three it's understandable the first three so we're getting paid first so we're going to vow so that we can ensure the next one uh, that we were we 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 were not paid at all. Uh, that's why we're collecting. So they'll understand that it's not because she's more trustworthy because it's that's that's the order. All right. Explain the word tachsif according to Rav Shiragaon. Uh, Rashi has a different explanation that the fourth one, since she knows it may be repossessed, is going to uh, plow the land and take everything from it in a short way in a a short term and ruin the land because she figures probably one of the first three's lands are going to be possessed. I'm not going to keep this a long time. And so we don't want that to happen. Um, Okay. But uh, I think Rav Shiragon is a more straightforward explanation. Um, Third explanation. Abaye Amad. Abaye Kashisha Ika Benayu. Abaye, the fourth generation uh, Amora says that they are arguing about the opinion of Abaye Kashisha. Different Abaye, Abaye the elder who's before Abaye. Uh, what did he say? He's a Tana. The Tane Abaye Keshisha, the elder Abaye, said in a Braita, When the rabbis talked about orphans and they said, anyone who collects money from orphans has to make a vow. They were talking about not only when their orphans are children, for sure. There, everyone agrees that. If you're taking money from children, child orphans, so you have to make a vow because they don't know how to protect themselves. But even if the orphans are adults, 
adults who lose their father um, and uh, someone comes to collect money, whoever's collecting money has to make a vow because those children, adult children, uh, don't know, don't necessarily know if their father paid back or didn't pay back or what the situation was. And so um, they would have to, um, they have to make a vow. Okay, and so that's the machloket between them. Tanakama let led Abaye Keshisha. Tanakama does not hold of Abaye Keshisha, and therefore the fourth the fourth wife does not have to make a vow um, sh- uh, because uh, the, the first the fourth wife is not taking from any of the first three. The first three wives got paid. The fourth wife, if she collects wrongly, meaning if she already the, the husband already paid her out uh, half of her ketubah, let's say. Um, then, if she collects uh, in, in, in uh, dishonestly, she's not taking from the first three wives, but rather from the orphans, from the sons who are inheriting the the their the, the wives' husband. And so, since she's collecting from the children, uh, she has to make a vow, and doesn't matter even if the children are adults, she would still have to make a vow. So all four have to make a vow, not only because they're taking the first uh, are taking from the first three could be. De- depleting money from each other, but even the fourth, who's not depleting from the other three, anytime you take money from from orphans, you have to make a vow. Well, Ben, uh, um, so Tanakama says, uh, does not agree with Abaye Keshisha, and therefore he says, if the kids, if the uh, inheritors are adults, so no need to make a vow. Benanas says, agrees with Abaye Keshisha, even if the inheritors are adults still um, whoever is taking money from orphans has to make a vow and that's why all four of the wives have to make a vow this is how i explained the mishnah yesterday when we uh, studied the mishnah according to this final explanation okay next if you have two brothers or two uh, partners and these two have a legal uh, argument against some other person and only one of the partners actually goes to court to fight with that other guy and the other partner didn't go Let's say the brothers uh, or partners lose the argument in, uh, in, in court. So the brother who didn't, uh, who decided to stay at home and didn't go to court, cannot come and say after they lose, oh, well, that might. My, my brother, he's the one that went to court, but he did not represent me. I, I, have no, I had no uh, dealings with him, and so I get to bring you to court. I go to court again separately uh, because I would have, you know, if I was there, I would have made some better arguments. No, you can't say that. But rather, each partner or each brother is an agent for the other. Um, so same thing like in a class action suit or something where the, there'll be people that represent all of the plaintiffs and uh, so um, unless you say you know I'm not part of that class action suit otherwise whoever is going to court is going to court on behalf of all of the plaintiffs and that's the same thing here once the case is decided against because one partner went uh, the other partner cannot complain one time Rav Nachman went to Suda and asked in Suda uh, what do you think about a case like this? Ravuna said that 
the uh, the brother who stayed home had does not have a right, and so he asked them what they think over there. Right? Do you agree with Rav Huna? And so they said, yes, we agree, because look at this Mishnah. We can prove it from our Mishnah. Because after all, see, when the first uh, wife wants to come collect, she makes a vow to the second wife, and the second to the third, and the third to the fourth. But the first wife doesn't have to make a vow to the third, Right? Doesn't say that. Why is it? Uh, is it not because that when she makes a vow to the set, when the first makes a vow, a vow to the second, the second is an agent representing herself two, three, and four, um, because uh, they all, all three of the next wives, two, three, and four, are interested, have interest in making sure that the first one was not paid at all. And so, really, the first one should have to make a vow to two, three, and four. Two, three, and four are all the plaintiffs here. They all have interest in making sure that one doesn't collect in, uh, in, uh, um, dishonestly. Uh, nevertheless, the Mishnah says that one only has to make a vow to two. And the number three can't come and say, hey, no, I, I didn't hear the vow. You make a vow again to me. I didn't accept that vow. No, she represents all of them. Okay, so uh, therefore in Surah they upheld what Rav Huna also said. Uh, but then the Gemara itself says, Midame, hold on, that's not really a good proof. In the case of the Mishnah, where the first one makes a vow, a vow to one person is the same as making a vow to a hundred people, right? If someone would, would lie about a vow or, or tell the truth about a vow, it doesn't really matter how many people the vow would affect or how many people she's saying it in front of, right? She made a vow to one, so the, to the second one, and that vow was equally believable uh, to, for the third and the fourth. Not like the, the third said, oh, I want to hear the vow again. If I was there, then she would have told the truth. She vowed already. That's enough. Whereas when you're going to a court case, there it's a lot more complicated. It's not just about a vow. There's all kinds of possible claims that you could make, evidence that you can bring, uh, 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 and uh, arguments that uh, you could uh, you could take. And so the partner who stayed at home uh, has a legitimate uh, claim to say, oh, you know, my, my partner went, oh, I, I didn't know he was going there, or I knew he was going there, but I thought he was going to make a good argument. Seems like he didn't make it. We had a better argument, and so I want to relitigate the case because I wasn't there. So these aren't the same. And really, there's a reason to say that in the case of a vow, Yes, one represents all, but in the case of a court case, uh, uh, but in a court case, maybe not. Maybe the one who didn't go to court does have a right to relitigate. However, the Gemara says, ela de la ite bemata. Aval ite bemata iba ele However, this consideration that if you weren't there, maybe you do have a right to relitigate, that's only if that second brother was not in town. He was away, um, and so he had no possibility of coming to court. If that's the case, and they lose, so then we, we could consider that when the first one loses, the second one comes back and says, oh, you didn't give this argument? No, I, this doesn't apply to me. I want to relitigate because I wasn't there. Maybe that, maybe we'll, we'll take that into consideration. However, if the other partner or other brother was in town and he was just too lazy to come, sorry, then you can't, you, then they have no right to relitigate. Right? If you really wanted to be there, then you should have gone.
איתמר, שני שטרות היוצאים ביום אחד, רב אמר חולקין ושמואל אמר שודה דדיינה. This section of the Gemara is now commenting on the second half of the Mishnah from yesterday that talked about uh, various shetarot that have the same date on it, so which takes precedence, or we look at the time. If there is a time stamp on the date, on the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the contract, then the earlier one is the one that will have the first lien, that's the one that will take effect. Um, and in Jerusalem, they used to write dates. Um, however, we're talking about a case where no dates are written on these two, on these two uh, contracts, uh, two deeds, maybe a deed of sale uh, over the same piece of land. If uh, they were on different dates, uh, one from Sunday and one from Monday, then the sale on Sunday would be the one that's effective. That buyer gets it, and the one from Monday was uh, sold um, a, uh, a piece of land that was now no longer owned by the seller, so he's out. Okay, so if you have two, two deeds of sale that have the same date on it and no time, what do we do? Rav says they, they split it equally because uh, neither can prove to the other um, if they were earlier in the day or later in the day, so they split half-half. And Shemuel says, uh, discretion of the judges. The judges will look and into the case and see, you know, this guy was a closer friend than the other one, so probably the seller wanted to sell it to the one who's a closer friend to, than, than him, or whatever it is that they look into and figure out. Uh, they, it's up to them to decide. Some say that the word shuda is de derived from the word shohad, uh, just with the guttural dropping out. Uh, just like when someone takes a bribe, uh, uh, takes a bribe the judge then you know is uh, does whatever he wants because he took a bribe uh, here we're not saying that these judges take bribes they do not but rather it means that it is at their discretion because there's no rule to follow so um, 50 50 chance um, hopefully they'll be better than 50 50 in uh, deciding who the seller really intended for it to go to Okay, so now let's analyze the uh, Rav and Shemuel, what is their machloket based on? In Masechet Gitin, there's a major machloket about the effectiveness of a get. A get requires witnesses, and the witnesses are not there only to prove that the divorce happened, but they actually actually effectuate the divorce. There is no divorce unless there are witnesses. The question is, which witnesses are the key witnesses that effectuate the divorce? According to the Bimeir, it's the witnesses that sign the get. They're the, they're the key witnesses uh, that effectuate the divorce. Now, it's true that the husband also has to give the, um, the divorce paper to his wife, and it's only finally, if, if he never gives it, they're never divorced. But according to the Bimeir, uh, when he gives it, let's say he wrote it on Sunday uh, with, with, with witnesses. So that actually is when the, when it, um, that's the key moment. If he then delivers it on Monday, then on Monday, retroactively, Actively from Sunday, that's when they were so they were divorced from Sunday, even though it won't actually take effect until it's actually given, but it happens retroactively. So it's the signers on the on the get itself that are the key witnesses. Whereas it'd be Alazaz, we're going to see in a second, say, no, it's the witnesses to the delivery. And so they are only divorced at the time of delivery. Um, although according to him, 
it would have to be delivered on the same day that it was written. Okay, so how does this affect us? Uh, we're assuming that this machloket about get would apply also to a deed of sale, so that the deed of sale is written and there's sig- signatories to it, but it also has to be delivered. The seller actually has to give it to the buyer. And so, according uh, to Rav, Rav would follow Rabbi Meir, and Rav is the one that said they they divide it. Um, and this is a Litva's explanation. There are uh, many explanations to uh, to this uh, uh, why Rav would be connected to Rabbi Meir. Uh, so this is one. The idea is as follows: um, when they sign it, let's say on on Sunday, and one he 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 signs one sale of delivery in the morning and one in the afternoon, but we don't know which is which. But in any case. He doesn't deliver them until Monday. So now on Monday, he delivers, the seller delivers two documents to two different, two different people. Since they happen retroactively, and there's no time in them, so they happen retroactively to Sunday as a whole, not to any particular time on Sunday. And therefore, actually, both buyers have an equal right to the land, and that's why Dav says they should split it. Whereas Shmuel da Amar Kerebi Elazad Amar Edem Mesira Karte, according to Shmuel, it's not the witnesses that sign it, but rather those who witness it being delivered. He would say the same thing regarding a deed of sale, and presumably he's not giving two deeds of sale at exactly the same time, but rather whenever he's giving the deeds of sale on Sunday, one in the morning, one afternoon, or one one minute after each other, whichever one he gave first, that person fully. Uh, deserves the land, and the second one deserves zero. The thing is, we're just not sure which one it is. So therefore, don't split it, because it only it really only, only should go to one or the other. Since we don't know, and there's no proof, we'll leave it up to the discretion of the judges. Hopefully, by analyzing the case, they'll be able to figure out with better probability than half-half which one the seller really wanted to give it to, and therefore gave it to first. Okay, so that is uh, the, the um, we're proposing that. We're going to reject it, and then uh, we're going to go back and uh, uh, and confirm it again, this uh, theory. Maybe, in fact, everyone follows Rabbi Al-Azhar, that it's the point of handing it over. Those are the witnesses that matter. Uh, maybe, in fact, is a, you know we have no idea, because we don't know if he gave it to this one first or that one first. So it belongs to one or the other, but we just don't know. Nevertheless, Rav says, better to give each one half, because at least that way, the real buyer uh, at least didn't lose lose everything, at least he has half. It's better than nothing. And so that way you can ensure that you can minimize the possible loss to the real buyer. So Rav says, oh, it's always better to split. Shemuel says, no, that's not fair because then there's a possibility. uh, Then you have a definite, you're you're making it definite that the real buyer is not getting fully what what he was owed to him. And uh, this is certainly not fair if you split it. Uh, so Shemuel said, rather make, ha, to use the discretion of the judges. And that way, if they're good judges and can figure out better than 50% uh, randomness of which, who, who's the real buyer, so then hopefully the real buyer will get 100% and the other one will get nothing. So you have more chance of uh, having a fair outcome if you use discretion than if you just always split it.
Okay, so that's what we try to say. So maybe that's, maybe that's not related to uh, to get. But then we say, Hold on. According to that, you're going to have to say that Shemuel and Rav both follow Rabbi El Azar that say that it's the Edim for the handing over. And everyone agrees to that. But is that true? But Rav said, yes, it's true. The Halakha is like Rabbi El Azar in Gitin. But not in Shtarot. When this was said in front of Shemuel, Shemuel says, Halakha is like Rabbi Al-Azad, not only in Gitin, but also regarding a monetary uh, uh, deeds of sale. So we can derive, since Shemuel says, I agree with Rabbi Al-Azad in Gitin and Shtarot, we can infer that Rav, said, who said, Halakha is like Rabbi Al-Azad in Gitin, means Gitin only, and not in monetary documents. So we cannot say that everyone agrees with Rabbi Al-Azad. We're going to go back to that to reconfirming our theory that Rav follows Rabbi Meir and Shemuel follows Rabbi El Azar. Okay, but now we have an objection. Shemuel said above that we should follow the discretion of the judges. But here we have a Braita that says two contracts that are um, issued on the same day, they should split it. So how is Shemuel going to explain this? Uh, so Shemuel can say simply that Braita is following to be Meir and Rav follows to be Meir and that's why it says Cholkin. But I have I have a, I have an, a Tana on my side to be El Azar. You can see from here why we, it was so important for the Talmud before to make Rav and Shemuel line up with two Tanaim. That way, Shemuel could defend himself against this this Baraita. But it doesn't uh, it doesn't work because read the continuation of the Braita. Can that follow the Bimeir? It says Katav umasar Masar Lo Kana. This Baraita cannot be the opinion of Rabbi Meir because the second case says that if someone wrote a, a document of sale having in mind person A, but then actually delivers it to person B, uh, person B is the one that gets it, uh, which means that it's the witnesses to the delivery that actually effectuate. And if you say it's Rabbi Meir, why would the person B get it? Rabbi Meir says it's the uh, it's the first one. It's the, um, the the signatories of the signing, and therefore person A should get it. And therefore, this the second half of the Brayta is Rabbi El Azad. If so, the first half of the Brayta is also Rabbi El Azad. Now, beforehand, Shemuel was saying, "Oh, I follow Rabbi El Azad," but here, uh, this is this Brayta is Rabbi El Azad, and yet it says that in this regular case of two uh, on the same two two contracts on the same day, you should divide it and not rely on discretion of the judges. So this Braita, when taken in full, is is a refutation of Shemuel. Shemuel does not follow Rabbi Meir. He does not follow Rabbi El Azad. What's he going to do? And the answer is Tanaehi. In fact, it is a machlo, another machloket, not a be, not the one between the Azad and the Meir, but rather between Chachamim in Eretz Yisrael and Chachamim in Bavel, and Shemuel is following Bavel. As this Braita says, the Tanya Chachamim Omrim Yachloku Vechan Ameru Ma Shirseh Shalish Yaase. This Braita is talking about a case where 
person A sends some money to person B with a messenger. In the meantime, while he's on the way, B dies, A dies, and he doesn't know what to do with the money. It's not clear. A didn't tell him, in case he dies or in case I die, this is what you should do. So now the orphans of each of A and B are coming and, and claiming, oh, it should go to me, it should go to me. So the sages say they should split it half-half. But Khan, Khan uh, is referring to uh, Bavel, they say that whatever the, uh, the messenger wants to do, it's at his discretion, whatever he thinks that the, um, his, uh, the one who sent him would have wanted. And so Shemuel can say, listen, I follow the sages here in Bavel, and to say it follows a discretion. And discretion. In that case, there was a messenger, so he's the one that decides. But in other cases, it would be the judges. This is a fascinating beraita um, in that it quotes the sages from Eretz Yisrael, and the Baraita that quote, quotes the, the, the Babylonians, and it calls Babylonians the ones here, which is interesting because we don't have much Tanaitic material from Bavel. Everything that we have, the, the Mishnah, Tosefta, uh, Baraita, they're all from Eretz Yisrael, and yet here it's quoting something from Bavel and even calling that here, which means this is a, um, seems to be a Babylonian uh, baraita, so that is significant. Okay, now a story. The mother of Rami Barchama, he's a member of the, the sage that always uh, is in Machloket with Rava and who also gives likes to give borderline cases. Well, he was now the subject of a borderline case himself because his mother uh, transferred uh, ownership of her property to Rami in the morning, but Leurta Katvinu Lemor Ukva Barhama. But in the evening, in the afternoon of the very same day, she wrote another document transferring that very same property to the different son, Morukva. And so now each one is coming and claiming, no, she wanted to give it to me, she wanted to give it to me. They therefore, they therefore go to sages to have it adjudicated. Rami came and presented his cases, his case to Rav Sheshat. Rav Sheshat said, you're right. Yeah, she gave it to you in the morning, so you get it. However, went and asked a different sage, Rav Nachman, what his opinion was. Morukva says, oh, yeah, she wanted to give it to you. She, she probably liked you better. Now, these two sages themselves who gave contradictory rulings uh, ask each other about them. So Rav Shashat, who gave it to the, the morning brother, Rami, comes to Rav Nachman and asks, How come you gave it to Mor Ukva? And Rav Shashat asked Rav Nachman, How come you gave it to Rami? The answer is a question with a question. So Rav Sheshat says, I gave it to Rami Barchama because he, he was, his was written in the morning. And so he, he gets it first. So Rav, Rav Nachman says, are we living in Jerusalem where they write the hour? We're not. These are rabbis in Bavel. So there's no hour written in it. And therefore, if there's no hour written in the document, then even if one, uh, even if they agree that Rami Bar, Rami's uh, um, a document was written in the morning, still maybe it was not given till the afternoon. You see, if people don't write the hour 
in the document, it means that they're not particular about when it will take effect. And it could be that they wrote it in the morning, but then she wrote the other one in the afternoon and then gave the second one first and gave the first one last. And so if there's no date in the document, you really can't tell when it was effectuated and which one the mother wanted actually to give it to. So uh, so we're not in Jerusalem. So based on what did you decide? I did a discretion of the judge and I think the mother probably liked Morukva uh, better. And so that's why he she gave it to him. So Rav said, I also based myself on discretion of the judges, and I think she wanted to give it to Rami. Rav Nachman answers, First of all, Rav Nachman says, I'm a judge, you are not a judge. Rav Nachman regularly worked as, as a judge. He, was, he did this often. Rav Shashat was a scholar, but uh, did not serve as a judge. So therefore, my ruling is better. And second of all, when I asked you at first, you didn't say, I'm doing a discretion. You said, you thought because uh, Rami's was written earlier. And then you changed your mind in the middle. So you actually were not basing yourself on discretion. You thought that was the law and you changed your mind and therefore uh, my ruling is preferable. Okay, last story. So there are two documents of sale over the same piece of land. Uh, let's call this land, you know, one Ocean Avenue. And uh, on, but there's two dates. The date, dates are different. On one of the documents of sale, uh, the buyer has. It was sold to me on the 5th of Nisan. On the other day, a data, on the other bill of sale, it just says in Nisan and doesn't give a date. So we don't know, is it, uh, does that mean Rosh Chodesh Nisan or earlier than the 5th or later than the 5th? As if it was earlier, then he gets it. If it was later than the 5th, then the one that has the 5th gets it. So Rav Yosef said, I award this property, 1 Ocean Avenue, to the person who has the document that says the 5th of Nisan. Uh, because I know for sure when his date is, and you know, that's earlier in the month than, than most other dates in the month. So uh, let the other guy prove that his document is from before the 5th. He can't prove it, so... His document may be from the end of the month, and therefore it's a secondary document. So the one that had the the one that said all of Nisan uh, comes to Rav Yosef and says, "What? I should lose out? I don't get anything? Why is that fair?" Rav Yosef explains. You are at you are at a disadvantage. You have to prove. You have to bring proof of your case. Could be that your 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 sale happened on the 29th of Nisan. And so therefore, unless you prove otherwise, I'm going to go with the guy who has who has a, a definite date on the 5th and he gets the doc, he gets the land. Okay, good. So that one Ocean Avenue goes to the one that has the the 5th, but now the one that has the other document, he paid 
one million dollars for that piece of land and so he's owed something so he can go back to the seller and say listen you sold me a piece of land that was already sold i never got it and therefore you have to give me uh, you know my money back or some other land that you have i want your land at two ocean avenue right give me that land instead okay so the guy who get who got no land who had the the contract for the whole month of nisan he goes to rav yosef and says listen can you write me a document of authorization to repossess that will be dated from iyad on that way if the seller let's say that seller had uh, more land at to Ocean Avenue, even if he sold it to someone else in the meantime, uh, you know, way after in the summer. Um, nevertheless, the this this guy who has the document for the whole month can go and repossess the land since he paid for land in some time in Nisan, even if it's at the end of Nisan. So fine, from Rosh Chodesh Iyar, he has a lien on the seller's land and he can go repossess it. So he says, can you please give me a document of repossession so that I can go and, uh, and get my, um, and, and get what's coming to me from the seller. Rav Yosef says, no, sorry. No, I won't give that to you because the guy who bought to Ocean Avenue in the meantime can come to you and say, wait, leave my land alone to Ocean Avenue. You go take one Ocean Avenue because maybe you had the earlier date uh, before maybe your your sale was from Rosh Chodesh Nisan and therefore really that's your land you go prove that your your um your date of sale was after the fifth and therefore the one that on, is on the fifth gets one Ocean Avenue only then can you come and claim two Ocean Avenue but the guy who now owns two Ocean the buyer of two Ocean Avenue comes and says no one Ocean Avenue that may may very well be yours go prove otherwise so now this guy is really stuck because he can't prove uh, that his date is before uh, the fifth so therefore he can't get he can't take uh, one Ocean Avenue and he also cannot prove that it's afterwards and so therefore he doesn't deserve one Ocean Avenue so he does deserve to repossess from the seller to Ocean Avenue he can't prove that either he can't prove he's before he can't prove he's after so he can't get either land so this guy is really stuck my Takante what can we do to help him out so that he could repossess to Ocean Avenue and not lose out on his million dollars Here's what they could do. The two buyer, the, the, the two guys, the original guys, the one who had a contract from the fifth and the one who had from, from Nissan, they can write authorizations to each other. In other words, that one that has the fifth will say, listen, I authorize you to be my agent. And the other way around also. And that way, between the two of them, for sure one of them has a chance, has a right to repossess to Ocean Avenue because right, they were both sold the same piece of land. So if if they as long as they authorize each other it doesn't matter which one's which um when the one who has the uh, nissan uh, all of nissan document comes to the buyer of two ocean avenue he can say i'm acting either as myself or as the agent of the other guy and therefore it doesn't really matter if mine is before or after the fifth my purchase 
is certainly earlier than yours, which was after Iyad, and therefore I'm going to take to Ocean Avenue, and that way he'll be able to collect to Ocean Avenue, and then, well, the guy, that buyer, will have to go back to the seller and, uh, and take him to court to get his money back. But at least this guy will be protected. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.